three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by futurist Tracy Follows for part two of the Future series. We'll be exploring issues including why in the future you might be paying for your goods at the supermarket, not with a credit card or cell phone, but by using your face to make transactions. How people might be able to thought control machines in the future. How by preserving and uploading your mind files, it might be possible to create a digital version or cyber double of yourself. And finally, how some companies are collecting users' data so that AI can enable them to continue to have text or voice conversations with their loved ones after they die. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. What's going on, guys? Hope you're doing great. Uh, this is part two of the future series. I am going to uh, dive right in. No long, no long intros for me today. Last week, hope you all listened to and enjoyed my conversation with uh, futurologist Dr. Ian Pearson. We're going to be continuing a lot of the threads uh, of that conversation in today's discussion with futurologist uh, Tracy Follows. Now, Tracy is, like Ian, a professional futurist identifying the future trends that will shape our world. Her clients have included Telefonica, Google, Sky, Farfetch, Condé Nast, and Virgin. Um, she has spoken at UNHQ in New York, delivered her TEDx talk at the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and closed at events such as Think with Google. Tracy writes her own contributor column in Forbes, and her opinions are regularly sought by national media. She was an adage women to watch 2017, women in marketing winner 2016, and inaugural creative strategy jury president at Cannes Lions 2019. In 2018, she was listed by Business Cloud as a trailblazing women in tech, and she's a member of the Association of Professional Futurists, World Futurist Studies Federation, and a fellow of the RSA. And she just released a new book called The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? So it was a really fun 80 minutes that I spent chatting with Tracy. Uh, learned a lot. Guys, there's so much technology out there um, that's happening as we speak that you're probably not aware of. Like, for example, you'll hear about this in the episode, but there's like AI that um, can continue posting on social media for you after you die or um, AI that can continue texting your friends and family by using, you know, a, a, a repository of data files to anticipate what you would have said in conversations with them um, after your life ends. So, I mean, that's that's just sort of a taste of, of some of the projects and initiatives that Tracy um, was talking about that I wasn't aware of. So it was great to chat with her. I know you guys are going to love this episode. So without further ado, my conversation with futurist Tracy Follows. Tracy Follows, welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm delighted that you could uh, take the time to to chat with me about your book, The Future of You, and and um in the book you talk a lot about the future of AI and how it might change our concept of identity. I sort of want to unpack some of the areas that that you discuss in the book, Tracy. Sure, let's go. <laughs> so yeah, you devote a lot of the book to postulating this centralized digital identity system by which every country might be able to identify its citizens by its biometrics, say their fingerprints, and potentially allow them to pay for goods using fingerprints in lieu of credit cards. Can you ever see something like this catching on in, in America in, or in the UK and the Western world? 
you know, if you'd have asked me that like 18 months ago or maybe two years ago, I'd have said, no, we are liberal democracies. We are the West. We stand up for freedom. We would never have anything like this. And, and particularly in the UK, you might know um, that we have never had an identity card, you know, like a physical identity card. There were plans in 2010, but when the coalition took over, they shelved those. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've always had this idea that, you know, we are free citizens. We don't ask the government for permission to do things and we don't um, carry around papers. But I think since um, COVID um, and some of the measures specifically that have been taken in light of the pandemic, I think now I would say at least half of the population are not only expectant of that kind of centralized, um, what would you call it, verification or identity platform. I think actually I'd say 50% of the population kind of welcome it, to be honest. I'm in the 50% of the population that don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's not to say that I am against a digital identity system. No, no, I'm not. Um, I just would like people to think about and explore and um, make themselves aware that there are many, many options. So it doesn't have to be this kind of Chinese centralized system, which is you know, very authoritarian and and very kind of limited um, in a way and has a kind of punishment element to it, the joint punishment um, system. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not like India where it's the biometrics and it's again, a central code or unit that identifies you and that is linked to the government. There are other ways to do this and um, decentralized rather than centralized digital um, options, I think is, is a more fruitful um, path to go down specifically and particularly for a Western democracy. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, if, if I can envision whether or not this, this would catch on in the West, I do think there'd be sort of a partisan breakdown. You'd have the conservative and libertarian coalition that would be reluctant to share their, you know, uh, their information, their biometrics with um, a central administrator. And then you'd have people who would be willing to potentially sacrifice that privacy for the sake of convenience. And there are, and you talk about this in the book, there, there are, you know, serious benefits. I mean, a less risk of identity theft, um, you know, more, more efficiency. And you also mentioned potentially rather than having a centralized system, you alluded to this a moment ago, you'd have a decentralized system kind of like blockchain, blockchain technology used in cryptocurrencies. How might that work, Tracy? Yeah, so um, you're right. And increasingly, particularly in the last sort of 12, 15 months, there's been um, a plethora of new decentralized digital identity apps coming out. And really, I guess the way to think about this is less as a digital identity app and more like a digital wallet that you then fill with um, verifiable details, which tend to be called credentials or proofs. And so you can pick and choose what those might be. That might be your university qualifications or they might be your... in this case, like a health, a COVID vaccination certificate, or it might be um, a work permit, um, or it might be your pass to um, let yourself into your office if if and when we ever go back to those. (laughs) Um, So those are all the sorts of credentials that could go into a digital wallet um, alongside your, in the future, digital currency. Um, And the important thing about that is that it gives the user Um, flexibility and control over how and what information they share. So it means that privacy is really kind of designed into these decentralized digital apps or wallets. Um, Yes, you have to have a match at some point with a a government 
um, authorization. So it'll be their data on their server. And let's say it matches once, it pings the kind of um, public key and the private key to say, yes, you know, you've had, um, you've had a vaccination, let's say, as an example. Um, but then you carry that in your wallet and you show it to whoever you want to. And when I say show it, what I mean is it really, it pings to the, um, to the database without actually sharing any information. So anybody you're kind of showing it to doesn't really see any personal or private information. All they know is that you've been verified or authenticated. And they tend to work with um, a mixture of QR codes and biometrics. In most cases, it's, um, it's a, a fingerprint or increasingly it's facial recognition, mm. um, some kind of biometric like that. So we, we can't do away with biometrics altogether. But what I would say is the way in which biometrics are used is a, is a, a kind of lower risk um, way than, um, than perhaps a centralized um, kind of government controlled um, system might, might work. And because it's on the blockchain, obviously it's a, it's a kind of more networked, more decentralized in theory, much more trustworthy um, solution. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple things um, to unpack there. You know, I, I agree with you. You mentioned having a digital wallet in lieu of carrying your vaccination report card or even in the airport in lieu of carrying your passport. Mm. But I, I, I do wonder if there's uh, technology access issues here because um, even, even though we're in 2021, you know, not everyone has a smartphone. Not everyone has has the the capacity to carry around their cell phone at all times. So I wonder if you know there would be pushback in that regard, and and you know making sure the technology is accessible to all socioeconomic classes before we say, okay, we're going to implement this this sort of touchless technology digital wallet. Yeah, and this is one of the things I like about the decentralized solutions is that I think the people who produce them. Um, acknowledge that they're going to be phased in over time. <clears throat> so the particularly, um, the particularly adopted amongst a younger generation at the moment, and mainly because they need age verification if they're going into a store or a shop to buy alcohol, they need to verify their age. Or if they're going to a festival or an event, you know, and there they want to buy alcohol again, they have to uh, be authenticated or at least um, be age verified. I think is the term that is used. And so there's definitely a younger generation who are, you know, quite up for using this. And they've um, they've really um, included it in their sort of everyday life now. There may be older generations or just people who don't really want to have or use smartphones in this manner who don't want it. And for them, there's definitely got to be some sort of paper based system that's kind of, you know, fits off the back of this and sort of I know that you can kind of print out the QR codes so you can present them at certain places but I imagine it will kind of it'll kind of end up being you know for those who want to travel internationally mm -hmm. um, for those who want to do some of these other things that like you know enter virtual worlds or gaming or wherever you know we want to access more of these virtual or digital services then we're probably going to be encouraged I would have thought to to have some kind of digital authentication but it probably is a generational thing at the moment i mean i think this is one of the issues i don't think you can just say to a population certainly in the west right this is the new system and everybody's going to you know now have to carry this digital access i think that's that's sort of the behavior associated with a, a dominant authoritarian centralized system and right. with the decentralized ones it's much more look some people want to adopt this and they're going to start using it and over time it will become more normal 
will normalize and actually people will get to grips with it and and share it with others and see how useful it is and actually test it for its privacy and mm. user centric you know um benefits i suppose and and then you would hope that it would it would catch on after that yeah, and, and, and on that last point, Tracy, you mentioned in the book that in China, there's this joint punishment system where citizens are actually penalized for not carrying around valid legal documentation. I could see that being a part of the, uh, of the pushback as well. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, also a moment ago, you, you were talking about sort of not having a digital wallet, having just face, you know, people's faces to make transactions. Um, how, how might that work if, if listeners are sort of envisioning 20, 30 years into the future, you go into the supermarket, how, how can you, you know, make, make purchases without even carrying a cell phone or a digital wallet? Well, it's interesting because Amazon are already trialing that, aren't they, in their, um, in their whole food stores or the ones that are, have got what they call just walkout technology. And it, it works with a combination of sensors and facial recognition. Um, so you walk in, you take what you want off the shelf, um, you might put it back, um, but it, that's all sensed on the shelf. And then you walk out and it's worked out what you've left the shop with and then you're billed for it automatically through your, your app on your phone or your digital wallet. Um, they've just opened one in Ealing in um, West London here. Um, so that's being trialed. But I do know that there, there are patents out to look at um because it's probably in the west it's it's probably quite difficult for people to use their face to pay in in russia and bulgaria they're carrying out some quite interesting experiments with facial recognition in china they already do it in kfc where you just smile to pay that's all that's all um yeah that's all connected to um your phone and the and the uh, credit card that's in your phone and it speaks to the the data point um behind the till and then you just have to smile it's recognized and you've paid I think in the West, that's not going to go down that that well. And we'll probably end up doing gesture control. So we'll probably, um, rather than use our face and facial expressions, we'll probably um, hold our hand up, hold our palm up to some sort of screen or monitor. And at the moment, the patents are looking at, um, looking at the biometrics, looking at the veins in your hand and identifying you through that. So it might be sort of dual biometric, maybe it's the iris in your eye and facial recognition and the veins in your hand. And um, that's probably how we'll end up uh, shopping sort of frictionlessly, if you like, or seamlessly. <laughs> and, um, and, and maybe it will even, you know, maybe it will even encourage new ways to shop. So you can imagine that vending machines, for example, on the street, you know, we don't have to actually transact with real cash or put your credit card in you can just hold your hold your hand up um you know we might see vending machines and little sort of mini shops or micro shops appearing mm. sort of things you know it, it, it's interesting uh i i hear you describing this this future world and call me a, a, a purist or a, a technophobe but I'm a little alarmed, and you reference this in the book uh, when you mm. talk about how it calls to mind a dystopian future where maybe our facial features might be analyzed to read our minds or to sort of anticipate our actions. I, I and, and I talked about this with your colleague Ian Pearson last week, mm. but, but I'm a little bit concerned by if, if society in the West decides to proceed down this path, all of the unintended consequences that might come along with it. Oh, yes. I mean, they're huge. Uh, I mean, unintended and intended consequences. <laughs> um, but actually, what's happened in the uh, European Union, even in the last sort of 10 days or so, um, they have um, 
they've announced that they're going to put some new regulation around AI in the same way that they did around data and privacy with GDPR for people who are um, who are nerds and know about that piece of legislation. Um, it looks like the way in which they're going to approach it is to think about this. There's several different um, risk categories of the use of AI and okay, might be used in the military and probably to some extent in the police, but not for the police to just use it um, without any regard to the implications or the consequences. So there's going to be some um, conversations about how it's implemented and what it's used for with um, public services like the police. Um, and then when it comes to commercial uses, it seem, they seem to be suggesting that um, startups, for example, would need to come to the EU and do some sort of sandbox where they worked through the implications and the impacts of it. And there was some, there's some, I would say, negotiation around how and what it's used for. So it feels to me like there's the start of some kind of regulation um, coming around sort of biometrics in particular facial recognition um it's interesting because there has been a few uh, surveys and a few kind of consumer research um projects and what they've really what they've really tended to throw up is that people aren't aren't too worried about the likes of facial recognition and biometrics if there's definitely a kind of public advantage um, it, it's more difficult, I think, when you get into the commercial environment, because really, as you say, it's just about either convenience or security. Um, and um, it's very it's very hard unless you kind of put it on the streets or put it in shops um, or at events um, and people are, are using it and they can see the consequences of it. it. It's very hard to get a handle on, you know, the balance and, and get the balance right. So it really does have to be put into practice in order for us to work out whether this is good, bad or indifferent or other ways we should use it, other ways we shouldn't. Um, but certainly it's a concern that if governments are using it as they have done over the last 15 months in all kinds of peculiar ways to kind of herd their populations around and um, put the fear of God in them, you know, um, there was even um, a biometric application from a Russian firm that was, I um, can't remember the name of it now, I think I mentioned it in the book, um, but they're looking at not only your kind of gait, so the way you walk and being able to identify you from that kind of biometrics, but they're also now able to look at your silhouette and identify you from that, and that was being used for um, working out who was social social distancing on the street and who wasn't. That kind of stuff is incredibly frightening, I think. Yeah, like, and, and, and the other thing is, um, and, and this is something that, that you, you come back to in the book, and we'll probably speak about more in this conversation, is, is you know, having ethicists be part of these conversations. Because I wonder if, you know, if you look at the, the efficiency consideration, going to a KFC and smiling with, you know, smiling to the camera, is the advantage that you get, the, the negligible difference between um, having your facial features detected and paying and actually just bringing your, your cell phone or, or, your, or, or your physical wallet, is that worth you know, the, all of the um, implications that, that come with having a system like this and, um, you know, how, how to make sure that, uh, that everyone's voice is a part of this conversation. And I mean, could you even have a society where, um, you know, some businesses and, and some groups and some cities opt into a system like this and some opt out or, you know, would that be too fragmented? So, so I feel like there, there's a lot of um, ethical considerations that, that are a part of this as well. Oh, uh, undoubtedly. I think you will get some nation states and potentially even new states. I'm thinking like social networks that end up um, behaving like states 
um, like nations, um, you will get some who are more digitized and some that are less digitized. Some like Estonia um, think of themselves as a digital state, but mm-hmm. kind of anybody can be a, not a citizen, but anybody can be a resident or have um, an opportunity to be a part of. And others um, think, still think of themselves as very much, you know, sort of physical territory and have um, borders around them. The thing is, what we don't know all of the time is what's going on behind the collection and the analysis of that biometric data. Where does it go? Who owns it? Who manages it? Um, Who is it shared with? What kind of judgments or analysis are being made? So if you look at one of the Chinese, um, one of the biggest Chinese facial recognition um, producers, they that even if you i mean this isn't hidden in any way but i happened to go to their website it was face plus plus and i looked at their drop down menu because i was thinking oh gosh they seem to do an awful lot of um applications from this simple kind of facial recognition technology and they were doing face merging face blending face matching uh, mm-hmm. face swapping all these sorts of things um and then i was drop, going down the drop down menu a bit further and then i found um beauty score evaluation and um, skin status now you know somebody somewhere or something somewhere a machine probably is making a judgment about that person not just where they are or who they're with or where they um, are carrying out a transaction but um, clearly in this case how beautiful they are or not and those are the sorts of data streams that can be fed back to commercial organizations that help them either sell to more products to you or create products that are targeted to you or potentially kind of even um, have a bearing on um, what products and services that you have access to. Because if you've got a facial recognition technology on the street or in a particular store making a making a judgment about your skin status, say if that's fed back to your insurance company mm. and then that information is used to I don't know, make a make a judgment about how well you are that day or how healthy you're looking or if you're not particularly healthy maybe they need to put your premium up you know I you can just imagine the sorts of complicated um scenarios that can go around with that can that, that, that can be carried out um on the basis of some of these data streams if they're put together in certain ways by certain um agents we could even extend that further talking about uh, whether or not um, you know, these, these programmers are, um, you know, actually, actually sort of, uh, including their own biases in, in the algorithms and, and, uh, you know, um, whether or not racism and and bigotry is a part of this. Uh, and that's that I I think would have to factor into it as well. Um, I, I want to, I, you know, I want to turn to, to, um, the potential of, of machines replacing uh, human connection. I spoke with, uh, Ian last week about the notion Mm -hmm. of AI, uh, possibly in the context of intimacy, replacing connection, uh, Ian, Ian and I spoke about how in the future people might be having sex more often with robots than with each other in the book. You actually took it a step further, mentioning that in Japan, thousands of people are entering cross-dimensional marriages with virtual characters. I, I was I was flabbergasted to hear that. Have you not married one? Not, not, not yet. Have you? No, I haven't. Um, this is an interesting um, and I think. Um, and one in the past may have thought, oh, it was it's just very it's cultural, it's very specific to Japanese culture and for young men, because of course, like one in four of young men or men in Japan never ever marry anyway. Mm. Um, and you can think, oh, it's a societal cultural thing that's that's just 
really redolent there. But no, I think this is um, part of a trend, as, as with lots of trends coming from Asia over into influencing the West, particularly um, with technology. You sort of think, well, you know, <laughs> One can, especially after you know people have been in sort of um, self isolation or being forced to live in their lots of people have been single. These mm-hmm. these digital assistants, which we're kind of used to as voices like Siri and Alexa, are now becoming more um, embodied, should we say? So there are sort of cartoony animations that go around the voice, and they kind of you know exist within your um, home setting, let's say. Um, and um, you can talk to them, they can converse with you. I mean, I, I talk about in the, um, in the book, uh, this example from Gatebox, which has got a lovely ad, um, which shows the young man in his apartment, she wakes him up, I mean, the digital assistant, she wakes him up, uh, she says morning, she reminds him to eat. Um, maybe she even suggests what he should wear, he goes to work all the day, he's texting her and she's like, oh, come home soon, I miss you. <laughs> he gets home and he spends his night well, I, we don't know how he spends his night, but let's suggest that he spends his night conversing with her. Um, yeah. And she's in this sort of little glass dome. And um, yeah, she's a kind of, um, she's kind of a anime kind of character. Um, but, but you can see how that kind of sort of emotional support for um, someone who hasn't got um, a, a real life partner in their life could be interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, I've spoken to people who work in this area and their view is that it shouldn't replace human connections and human relationships. But for those who don't have one at the time or feel like they can't be with the person they want to be with for a time, then maybe these are useful or interesting or enjoyable or entertainment. And maybe they become um, a complement to uh, real life relationships. Well, I mean, look, I think I think I agree with you. There's certainly utility for uh, for some people who maybe have trouble um, interacting with people. Maybe that, you know, maybe you live uh, in a secluded area and and you just don't have a lot of contact. Maybe during a pandemic. Right. Like you can't actually physically be around people. Maybe have an autoimmune disorder uh, or, uh, you know, immunosuppressed, whatever the case may be. But I will say, um, and, and I spoke to Ian about this a little bit, I, I think the danger, Tracy, is, is you almost devalue uh, you know, the human-to-human connection when, you're, when you sort of reduce the human uh, connection to the nuts and bolts of you know, what does a person provide you with? Conversation, companionship, um, like you said, telling you what, what to wear, all of those things, and you just program that into a robot, then all of a sudden, what do we need humans for? You know, I, I think that, that might be part of part, part of the um, the pushback if this does become more mainstream. Yeah, yeah, it might be, and it might be that culturally we're not um, we're not kind of ready or uh, willing to adopt this sort of thing. It might be that there is a, a kind of block to it culturally or societally. <clears throat> but I think it might be that we these are more like um, pets than they are like other people in a relationship. So, for example the way in which we we welcome pets into our lives. Um, and like me, some of them do treat them like they're humans. Um, <laughs> but um, they kind of bring out, sometimes it brings out more of your humanity. And it doesn't necessarily become an alternative to real life relationships. It's just another element of the family or the household or, um, or your life really. And I, I wonder if these characters, these kind of animated, embodied AI characters, especially 
will become quite, um, I think in the West, I think they're going to become part of the family. I think it's going to be less like a romantic relationship or a, a close intimate relationship. I think they're going to become part of the family and they will do jobs um, and connect with all of the, um, all of the members of the family. And they will also kind of be, be recording lots of images and memories and little stories that you can play back, back later, you know, mm. things like that. So, uh, yeah, that, that's where I think that they'll fit in. And, and actually much more so than a robot because a robot's quite, it, it's quite hard mechanical. It, it's difficult. It's, it's less, it's got less character, should we say. And some yeah. of these are really sophisticated as characters. And the more time we spend in virtual worlds, the more we become acclimatized to sort of being around and in amongst these sorts of character animated characters. And so I, I see them as being part of um, family life, if you like, in the home. Yeah, that's. I, I think that that's an interesting um, hypothetical uh, to consider. Uh, and then you know, a minute ago you mentioned uh, Siri and Alexa, personal assistants, and maybe um, having you know a more developed version of 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 them. Right now, they're disembodied voices. In the future, you say they might be life size. How far? If you can sort of uh, you know postulate here, how far away do you think we might be from that? 10, What's 20 that? years. Yeah, some of it's going to be going to depend on some of this new regulation <clears throat> if there's regulation that's put around ai that really prevents innovation but let's say that didn't exist and, and hasn't come into force i think these virtual beings we can call them or non-biological intelligences in the more sophisticated way because those are the sorts of things that will probably complement us at work um i think you know in 20 years time there's no reason we we wouldn't have that and maybe um, this is all part of the sort of brain machine interface where we aren't in a, a kind of communicative relationship where we're, where we're trying to communicate via speech to some of these um, embodied AI assistants. Hmm. Maybe um, we can thought control them or certainly kind of, um, you know, pass our thoughts to them because there's no reason why we can't with sort of Neuralink and um other brain machine um, interface experiments as those get more sophisticated we should be able to thought control machines we th should be able to thought control anything that's a kind of computer and so that's what these will be essentially and so I imagine that that's how we'll connect with them a lot of the time. Uh, yeah that uh, the brain machine interface that's a powerful concept to consider I, I want to go back to that later on mm. but I, you know let me ask you uh, do you have an Alexa in, in your household? No, I'm, I'm not so stupid. I don't want to be under surveillance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you, you read all the time about how um, you, when, you're, when your Alexa, your Siri is not listening, they're still, uh, you know, potentially relaying information and then it shows up in your search history, stuff like that. I, I don't have Alexa. I only speak to Siri, but I'll tell you uh, sort of anecdotally, the, the limitation of Siri right now is my Siri doesn't remember anything I asked prior. Like yeah. if I ask Siri... Um, you know, at one in the afternoon, where can I get good Mexican food in San Francisco? And then five minutes later, I say, what about in Palo Alto? She won't remember. It won't remember what I'm talking about. Yes, you, exactly. You mentioned uh, Lucy, uh, a new AI assistant that might be better hmm. suited to dealing with this. Yeah, so I, I don't know how well developed this is, but it's a concept that has come out of um, a company called Fable. Um, and Edward Sarch has been working on this and bringing it to market. And that is a, an interactive animated AI that's very um, pretty, very um, aesthetically. Um, I can't, I, you connect to it because it's um, it really does. She really does look and feel human. But it's a it's a character, a cartoon, I suppose, in a way. Um, and um, the idea is that she spends 
time with children in particular, sort of befriending children, I don't think, not in a kind of creepy, spooky way, um, but reading stories to them and asking them how their day was. And just the idea is that she can also record um, some of what's said and some of the moods and the feelings that the child might express and kind of play them back later and say, oh, well, is this why you feel like this? Or do you remember that? So I imagine that um, sort of memory recollection in that kind of way is going to be very important in terms of if you want to develop a relationship rather than just have some sort of, you know, transactional communication, like, like as you say, like it is with Alexa or Siri right now. Um, and those are the sorts of, um, so those are the sorts of um, developments that will bring us more closely connected in a more intimate way to some of these virtual beings. And this Lucy isn't, it's not like a mainstream innovation that's more. No, more no. I wonder how long it will take to go mainstream or what they're doing with it at the moment. I mean, it has been, um, I have, there is a lovely little video. If you look it up on Fable, um, the company who uh, produced this, there's a, a lovely sort of demonstration video, but I, I don't know how one acquires it or, kind of uses it um perhaps it's a prototype at the moment but you know it's um, quite compelling yeah i mean i i think i i could definitely see use for that but also like with like with everything else we're talking about um you know where where exactly do we do we draw the line and you know you mentioned uh brain machine interface technology uh for folks who aren't super familiar with that tracy what is brain machine interface technology and you know how do these technologies work Oh my goodness. Well, I am not an expert. Ian Pearson definitely is. Um, so I'm glad you spoke to him about it. But this is the likes of um, connecting um, the human brain onto some sort of, yeah, onto some sort of computer platform or digital platform to, or, or connecting it to the cloud to enable the brain to be given a bit more space, if you like. So it can either, um, it can either hold more memories or it can be given a higher IQ. It's just got a, a bit more memory to do um, more things or to do them at a higher speed or to do both together, I guess. Perhaps the most interesting, I mean, people have seen uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink, mm -hmm. which is exactly a kind of simulation. You're tapping into the neurons. You're um, working with the kind of, um, kind of lace device. They're lacing it into the brain. So it is invasive, obviously you kind of have to be up for that kind of surgery um, and lacing it into the neurons, picking up the signals from the neurons and then interpreting, interpreting them. Um, and then, you know, they travel outside again and then that will be connected to, I don't know, your wheelchair or a, um, a bionic leg or a prosthetic or something like that. Or in his case, he's talked about, you know, being able to control or um memorize music um so so one can see how that would play out in like say 20 years um and especially if you kind of link Neuralink to Starlink so the internet <laughs> maybe the internet is kind of laced in directly to your brain um but one of the things that is happening already is um <clears throat> as usual in the military and I think this one's um in DARPA so you might know more about it than me because it's um it's over in the US um, where they've got the, the military and they're carrying out this, this work called next generation non-surgical neurotechnology. Mm -hmm. um, luckily they've dubbed it N3. So uh, none of us have to remember <laughs> that long hand. 
Um, but it equips, it's exactly that, it equips soldiers for telepathic warfare. So it gives the soldiers the ability to control, for example, F-35 uh, fighter jets with their minds. Wow. So one can see that it's giving them a bit of extra brain space and so you can thought control. When I said thought control machines, you literally could thought control weapons, thought control machines, thought control, you know, military equipment. And one, I guess, can imagine that in the not too distant future, one can thought control, um, you know, robots in space. Um, so how are we going to get to space and carry out all the things we want to do? Maybe some of us are going to you know, stay on Earth and we'll be able to thought control um, some of the machinery, some of the... Um, some of the equipment that uh, is in space whilst we're on Earth. And one of the other uses, uh, N3 is one, you mentioned in the book, the uh, neosensory, um, so deaf people can, can potentially feel, sound, feel sounds on their skin. Um, I mean, that's Trace, the applications here are endless. And, and I, I did speak to Ian about, if we mm. extrapolate this forward, potentially training our brain to essentially like communicate with another person in the same room without ever speaking a word. And, and you call it in the book, you call it like Google mind docs, the shared information you have. With well, interestingly, phones. actually, um, I interviewed Ian for my book and that was his phrase. He was <clears throat> trying to explain how it could be positioned. He was saying it's like, cause I was talking to him about the hive mind. Cause that's one of the things that concerns me. Mm -hmm. um, the connection of all of our minds together um, if you think about the question of personal identity, it worries me that there will be a lack of um, identity, um, a, a lack of autonomy around your own thoughts um, as well as your own uh, life. Um, if you are always connected or a lot of the time you are connected um, sort of brain to brain or mind to mind. And I was talking to Ian about this and asking him and he was saying, well, of course you can if you know my brain's plugged into the same server his is plugged into and we're sharing the same kind of uh, server space um it, it's potentially the case obviously that you know we can just thought things to each other rather than say things to each other and that's how you have a, a kind of um well, it's not even a conversation is it you just think ideas together um and he was trying to explain it in the uh, i thought it was a good analogy it's not like google docs it's like google mind docs mm. great analogy i mean speaking would become obsolete, uh, listening would become obsolete, uh, podcast, radio, uh, television. It's, it's, it's certainly a, a slippery slope. And, and you, you alluded to, to Neuralink and, um, you know, there are other companies, there are, you know, startups that, that are devoted to brain machine interface technology. So I, I do think there's a real possibility that, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see more and more innovations. The, the military is an interesting one. Um, because then you have potentially some countries making use of, of this technology at, at the expense of, uh, of others. And then, you know, you think about international like human rights conventions and, and, you know, almost going down that path, especially I, before I read the book, I wasn't familiar with um, this notion of controlling jets, uh, soldiers controlling jets with their minds alone. So I, I think, you know, that's something uh, that people should keep their eye on in the next couple of years. Yeah. They're called super soldiers. But one can imagine how warfare then um, evolves into, especially kind of, you think about cyber attacks now or information warfare, just think about sort of bio information warfare. So if lots of communication is happening at a mental level, 
um, so we are sharing thoughts, then the easiest way to disrupt those, um, especially if those sorts of thoughts are controlling fighter jets or whatever it may be, mm. um, that's going to be um, that's going to be a target for any kind of you know a rogue state. Or it, it, you you could have real threats against not against your military equipment or your teams or boots on the ground. You could really see a threat against you as an individual. Um, through your own cognition, because you are, you know, in thought control of uh, various military equipment, for example. So they would almost like hack, hack your brain. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. It's yeah. an ominous, an ominous thought, Tracy. Uh, so I, I've spoken at length about this on the podcast before, but I, I think that there are few, if any, pr- professions that require such a degree of humanity that they can't be performed by AI, whether it be having AI prepare food at a restaurant, AI do your taxes, or even perform medical operations. In the book, the way that, that, that you describe it is you say, although people therefore tend to fear that robots are stealing our jobs, the truth is what is happening is not so much a displacement of jobs, but a displacement of tasks. What do you mean by that? So, I mean, every job is really a conglomeration of many, you know, sometimes hundreds of different tasks. And it's never really the case that a whole job is replaced by, you know, AI or a robot or a machine. Um, it's usually some of those tasks kind of get um, pulled out of the job and given to something else or somebody else. And I think I use the example of, you know, like typing. So there used to be pools of typists um, or secretaries, and they used to type out people's letters and um, you know check them and then send them in the mail. Well, we do our own typing now. Um, so in in a funny sort of way, the job of a typist has gone, but it's not really the job of a secretary or a personal assistant that's gone. It's just the the um, the behaviour of uh, typing onto a keyboard that has now been um, included into you know my job of you know. Uh, uh, word processing or whatever, which I would carry out as, you know, a consultant or as a podcaster or, or anything else, really. So it's the way in which those um, specific tasks kind of shift around. Um, and I think we underestimate um, the kinds of jobs that do come about as a result of new technology. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think there will be some categories or industries who are pretty much decimated by AI, not overnight, but over time. Mm-hmm. Logistics, you know, driving, um, some manufacturing, um, potentially even some kind of retail. Those are probably more threatened. Um, but I do equally think that, you know, there will be just numerous new kinds of jobs coming from new categories. It's a bit like when we used to have, you know, horse and carts and carriages um, with horses and the car came along and everybody said, oh my goodness, you know, there's going to be no jobs for, you know, carriage drivers. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there were so many new sort of peripheral jobs that um, started up. So little garage owners, you know, you'd have to go and have an MOT who carries out the MOT. So there will be a, a, there will be peripheral jobs, I think, that come around and emerge around some of these new categories that are created by AI. But even then, I don't really see it as AI replacing, um, fully replacing a whole job. I still think it will be us working with and alongside AI. Um, and we'll just kind of divvy out the responsibilities or the certain tasks of a job di- slightly differently. 
I mean, it's an interesting comparison with with cars um, because some people would argue that uh, once AI becomes, I don't know if the, if the terminology is self regulating or just it's it's becomes mm-hmm. low, lower maintenance. Um, then autonomous, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then it's, um, you know, then you don't necessarily need people to, uh, to, to, to program or, or, or things like that. Um, but I do hear your point. There will be, you know, jobs that require creativity and original thinking, ethics, th- things like that, uh, leadership uh, skills. Legals. There'll be a lot uh, of legals around it, you know, and guidance and, um, you know, maybe piloting AI before it goes, you know, There'll just be different kinds of jobs sitting around it, I think. But but just sort of, you know, to play devil's advocate, Tracy, yeah. let's say that AI is able to do almost any job in 40 years that we can do, whether whether that be, I mentioned earlier, working in a restaurant or in, in a hospital or even a courtroom. You know, let's say AI is doing all the manual labor, the retail, the consulting, the auditing. What in the world would, would all of us be doing with our time? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, what, what we'll just be working mean? harder on something else. I don't believe that forever <laughs> we've been told, and we'll have more leisure time. When have we ever had more leisure time? <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we just find these new jobs and new ways of, you know, monetizing things and new ways of um, inventing and innovating. And I think, uh, I think that's what happened. That's what's happened all the way through history. And I think that will potentially carry on now. Whether we'll make as much money in certain categories or industries, I don't know, because we kind of have to share some of our jobs with AI. So mm-hmm. we'll probably become a bit of a unit, a team. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, it won't have um, an effect on kind of uh, wage suppression, potentially. Um, but I still think there are opportunities to find new jobs to do and to and to work hard. Um, I, I've, always, I've always thought it was funny that, you know, we all these visions of the future always um, promise lots of leisure time. <laughs> Hardly anybody has any these days. Yeah, it, it, I, I, I hear you. I, I hear you for sure. Did you ever see the movie Wally? Um, no, actually, I know, I know of it obviously, but I've never watched it all the way through. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's a remarkable movie, but there's a um, there's a vision of mankind in, in in that film, and I hope I'm not giving too much away. But listeners are, are potentially, you know, mulling this over as as we're talking about this, where people are just sort of like morbidly obese. They're tethered to wheelchairs, and they're rolling around, and they have a screen in front of them on attached to the wheelchair, and their their lives are just, you know, uh, they're attached to this chair, they're consuming information, and they're not able to stand or exercise or move or work or perform any, any sort of utile function. And I think for some people listening, that might be a fear that you have this society-wide paralysis if, if AI takes over most, most jobs, even though, as you say, um, and, and, and I, do, I do agree with you, I, I don't think it's going to be that stark of, of, a, um, of a progression. I think there's more of a danger of that from Netflix. <laughs> I really do. I, yeah. I do wonder about the amount of time that we now sit in front of it, a screen being entertained too. Um, you know, what did we do before? Um, I suppose we made our own entertainment. Um, but I do wonder about you know, the sheer amount of entertainment content we take in now, um, you know, and what you could be doing. I mean, it's kind of like, if you watch a series of Netflix, it's kind of like a week of your time, mm-hmm. like a week of your life devoted to that. 
um you know i'm not sure how valuable that is <laughs> it's yeah it's extraordinary like we could have a whole a whole dialogue about um you know allotment of of time uh when it comes to i mean not just netflix and streaming services but video games um yeah. the consumption of of uh, content on social media platforms uh you know if you I, I think there's technology out there i was reading something from statista about the amount of money per capita that that each country loses because of um in productivity because people are are spending um time on these on these platforms either during the workday or, or at night uh what have you so i think that's that's a serious concern and, and speaking of um of those services in the book you also forecast in the future that people might have different AI services that correspond to different aspects of their personality. So you'd have an Apple service that emphasizes your creative qualities, Amazon that encourages your efficiency, and Facebook that communicates in ways that never fail to ca uh, capture the most sociable you. So if I'm understanding this correctly, we would be almost building our personalities through supplement with, with supplementation with this AI. Well, possibly. I was hypothesizing what would a digital assistant be like if you got as we were saying earlier, if they were really close to you sort of in the work environment. Um, and it could be, I mean, obviously we shouldn't forget that um, we have an effect on the digital assistant. So all of the data that we give out, all of the information that is used to sort of feed it, um, shapes it and influences what that digital uh, assistant will do and say and how it will behave. But equally that digital assistant and the way it speaks and behaves and acts with us and uh, has a, an effect back on us and our own p personality and our own identity. Um, I mean, you can see it most famously in the things that we decide that we don't need to do because it's taken care of by a digital assistant. So it, it, it has lots of effects on us. And I was just saying, well, maybe we'll either have a situation where we can choose our digital assistants and they become part of our personality or identity and, um, and we become part of theirs. Um, but maybe if you think about the technology um, companies and the way in which they might offer digital assistance in the future, they'll kind of want to brand them to themselves. So there's like a house style <laughs> to them. <laughs> so maybe, um, maybe yes, exactly. The Apple one is the one you use when you're going off for a really creative pursuit or endeavor. And maybe, you know, if you're just lazing around or you're being sociable, your Facebook digital assistant is, is exactly that a bit more sociable. It was kind of, a riff off the beginning of the book where I talk about the Dolly Parton challenge where <laughs> I'm kind of trying to make the point that it really brought it home that little challenge of seeing um, your LinkedIn profile picture your Facebook your Instagram or your Tinder if you have a Tinder um, really looking at the different mood and the different way in which you express yourself um, it, I mean we kind of know that we, we talk to we talk slightly differently or we post different content on different platforms but what was interesting to me was the way in which we literally not just change our mood but change our personality potentially even our identity to appeal to a specific audience on each of those platforms because we want the positive feedback um, and so we sort of we're sort of contorting our own identity to please an audience you know what and four or five different audiences across four or five different platforms and so I was thinking well if we've got a digital assistant in the future, maybe we'll end up doing that. So maybe when we go to a meeting, you know, we'll have a certain type of digital assistant where we kind of contort our personality towards something more serious or creative, you know, and if it's a, a leisure activity or social um, 
it's a social group or whatever, will have a slightly different digital um, assistant for that. It's difficult to know, obviously, but you know, I think this is the sort of thing you should do. You should hypothesize this and start to play it out in different um, possible alternatives and it'll start to um, start to create a good debate about what kind of future we do want or what kind of digital assistance or um, skill set or um, infrastructure do we want for these sorts of digital assistance before it's kind of foisted on us or it's happened and it's all too late to choose. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I love that. I love that. I think, uh, it, you know, in, in some way we're, we're already there. I mean, you, you talk a lot about, yeah. work, but sort of how we're curating our, our, um, our images on all of these platforms to the point where it probably wouldn't be difficult for, um, for AI to create either some sort of artificial conception of us or of like a model person um, in order to uh, sort of, you know, demonstrate like, like what, uh, you know, what someone might, might look like in, in one of these settings. You actually talk a lot about this in, um, uh, and, and we didn't, we didn't speak about it, but uh, in the social media aspect and how some companies have uh, vir- almost like a virtual. Oh, virtual influencers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, Thank you. Yeah, yeah virtual, some yeah, companies yeah. have virtual influencers. Yeah, so virtual influencers. So uh, people will probably know little Michaela, but they should you do and there's um several new ones come out even in the last kind of six months and um they firstly when lil michaela came about she was um posting lots of really intriguing kind of um images and and and, and posts uh, and videos um of herself in certain situations like at work working late on a pitch or she was worried about the meeting the next day and all of this and it, it became very apparent that actually lil michaela wasn't real she was comp- computer generated like completely computer generated and the and the kind of laugh is that um the company um Brud, who created her kind of are playing about with truth mm. yeah what's true what's real what's fantasy and um, it, what <laughs> the conclusion is really uh, that i make in the book have, have, having spoken to a lot of people who are involved in virtual influencers or with a younger generation who kind of follow them all the time um, is that it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't really matter that they're computer generated. To them, they are real characters. So they're not real if you're looking for a correspondence with the physical world. They don't exist in reality, but they exist in this weird form, in this weird, weird intangible virtual world that is social media or in sort of virtual reality games and platforms. Um, and to their followers, the stories are very important. They all hang together. They're coherent. There's an incredibly sort of charismatic character at the heart of it. And um, to all intents and purposes, it feels real to them. So we are now inhabiting a world with these virtual influencers and characters, and there's going to be many more of them. Um, And you've got a generation growing up who are kind of, this is kind of why I think um, virtual beings will be part of the family. You've got a generation growing up who are, who want to follow these and they're kind of like, well, it doesn't matter that she's not real. Um, Me and my friends are kind of into her. She's cool. Um, We want to know what she's doing the next day and we follow the stories and, you know, she's got a boyfriend, then she doesn't have a boyfriend, then she does, you know, it's all these stories. It's a bit like a comic strip, really, that in my day and age, you would have read in sort of Jackie magazine. It's like a photo real story. <laughs> um, <laughs> these are the these are the virtual influencers in the digital world. And they're kind of mirroring the lives that these young girls or um, Generation Z or A increasingly have. And so they kind of talk to them, really, and, and to them, to all intents and purposes, they're real. 
This is this is remarkable. I I've I had never heard about little Michaela before I read your book. And um, you know, you go to her Instagram profile. She has three three million followers. She's mm-hmm. um, her bio says Black Lives Matter, so she's obviously keeping up with mm-hmm. um, you know uh, social conventions and um, look, looks like she's a climate activist. But she's not even a real person. And it's 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 not surprising to me, and and I'm I'm sure it's probably not surprising to everyone listening that these programmers were able to to create um, sort of like, like another, uh, another version of like a a social media viral influencer um, just with code because of how much data is out there. You know, the hundreds of millions of people who use Facebook and Instagram that they were able to just create um, someone. It's it's almost more surprising that you have 3 million people that follow her every day that want to keep up with, you know, with what she's doing, knowing that she's not real. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's fueled this, of course, is commerce and monetization. So uh, the flip side of this um, is that um, very early doors with uh, Lil Michaela, she did quite a big promotional thing with Prada. So, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these virtual influencers are going down the catwalk, which is the digital catwalk now, in kind of virtual or digital clothes. Um, you know, and everybody's kind of buying into this. And you can see where it's going with NFTs, by the way, where yeah. obviously you've got these uh, virtual um objects that are now worth sort of real money in the virtual world. So you, you can see where it was heading. Um, but yes, um, in <laughs> you were being cynical, you'd say that um, lots of these virtual influencers have been created so that brands can um, sell products off them and they don't need to engage uh, or pay a real, real life people. model or celebrity because <laughs> you can just create your own and attach your products or your new product development or your launch or your brand uh, to this character. It's but actually brilliant. Cynical. <laughs> no, I, 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 you know, I, I think, I think it's brilliant. You look at her profile. She's wearing a, a pair of blue and purple leggings and you said, and, you, know, you say to yourself, yeah. wow, I, you know, this looks great. Where can I get a pair? Or she's, you know, uh, she's wearing jewelry and, and, and that's the effect. It's also not surprising because you think about how um, I, I'm sure you've seen like AI can create very funny memes. If, if you know, if it's, if it's yeah. uh, presented with mm-hmm. enough data, AI can create sheet music. There's also on Twitter every, every like week or so, so someone puts out like, you know, uh, they had AI try to write a screenplay and it ended up being better than any screenplay that a person could write. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think the potential applications here, Tracy, are, are almost endless. Well, I think one of the interesting things to it is it really is challenging us to stop thinking of the world in this binary way of real and fake or real and virtual or real and unreal, because what it's showing us is a clue to the future in which all of this is real. All of this is the world we inhabit. And you can see how the virtual influencers have a kind of effect back on real people. So, you know, that um, on Instagram, for example, you've got your Finster and Rinster, you've got your, your, your fake Instagram account, and you've got your real Instagram account. And your real Instagram account is sort of is funnily enough, ironically, not really you in that it's your performance, it's your Mm -hmm. character, it's the one you use to do your brand um, partnerships or whatever. Um, And then you've got your Finster, your fake Instagram account, which is how you really feel, you know, a smaller group, more private with your probably your friends and family. And maybe you might show some actual emotion in that. And so the whole 
idea of what is real and what is fake is being inverted in really interesting ways, I think. And that's one of the things I was interested in, because what does that do for your identity? Are you living two separate lives? Um, do you have an alternative identity? Or is this just um, an element of your overall identity, which we just have to get better in future? We, we just need to get better at integrating into this sort of whole self, if you like, because these are the ways we're not just performing once to people, we're performing in many different ways through many different characters or articulations through all of these different sort of digital media channels, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I think you're, you're right when you say we have to get out of this binary mode of thinking um, and, you know, and sort of expand our minds to including, you know, virtual influencers or, or AI creating mm -hmm. groups and plays into, into the world of, of our thinking. The last thing that, that I want to chat with you about, Tracy, mm. is this notion of uh, life extension and longevity. You, you referenced the longevity fund in your book, which is not about extending the number of years that we live, but the number of healthy years that we live. What's the distinction here? I think the distinction is that we've now got kind of um, biomarkers that we can kind of get a handle on how old someone is, but also how healthy someone is. Um, so you kind of get a, a life stage or a life age, but you also get a, a healthy life age. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a like a, a chronological biological age. You might be 70, but actually if you're um, oh a really, oh, there's my two dogs, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are um, a really healthy, you might, you know, live to 120, let's say. And so you're not really a 70 year old, you're more like a 60 or 50 year old. And mm. I think this is the whole idea of thinking less about age as a, as a chronological thing and thinking more about it as an individual, an individual score, if you like, or an individual health age. So increasingly, we're thinking about not just uh, two 70 year olds being exactly the same, but, you know, one 70 year old being much healthier than the other, and therefore having a, a sort of, um, you know, we might be given a mortality score or a longevity score, you know, I think that's where we're kind of heading. And it's based on uh, our health, um, our, you know, predicted age or length of life, I guess, and, and the way in which we spend our time. Um, and I guess with a lot of the wearables that we have these days, increasingly, they're going to start not just following and tracking us, and monitoring you know what we eat how many steps we do they're probably going to end up sort of maybe even every day telling us what our life expectancy is uh, wow. based on what we did the day before i definitely think that that's the sort of, that's the way the data's the health data is going to go it's going to be used in you know in a more predictive way i think that is horrifying. I think you just, you just, yeah, it is you isn't scared it? the life out of, out of everyone listening. So you, you, you mean to say that I can put on my Fitbit, go on a run. And with every step, it'll say, you know, your, your, your date of death is September 1st, uh, 2085 at 11, two, two, And then the next step it's September 2nd. And, and, you know, I could see all sorts of neuroses developing. because oh, of that. Totally. I mean, don't you think that's the logical conclusion of it though? I, I think it is. I mean, because there's more and more of these biomarkers being used. So, um, High cholesterol, I think, is used as a biomarker for heart disease. And so imagine we can collect all these biomarkers and when, then we can constantly monitor and analyze them. I mean, I, I'm guessing that well, people will want to know, well, what's the effect of that? And um, they'll probably want to be monitoring, gosh, how, how many 
how many years or days or hours do I have left? Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, <laughs> and a moment ago, you talked about like a healthy 70 year old versus um, someone who's, who's, you know, maybe a little, a little more high risk. And, and I think that's, that has to do with uh, chronological age versus biological age for folks yeah. who aren't familiar with that. Um, can you explain the, the difference between those two concepts? Um, I think one is just the biological age is looking at the health of the individual and making a um, making a judgment on um, what the age of this person is like, are they so healthy, they're like a 40 year old um, or, or somebody who's rather than, you know, this is somebody who's at 70, was born 70 years ago and has lived for 70 years and is a 70 year old. So I think what we're going to get is quite interesting we're going to have a situation where people of, of the same age are less and less peers and could be treated quite differently based on not how many years they've been on this earth, but how many healthy years they seem to have um, clocked up and therefore how many healthy years they might have left in the future. And that's the uh, recipe for, you know, huge inequality and potentially discrimination. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an, an aging expert by any means, but I do think it's a little naive for us to judge someone's health and, and what, whether or not, the, you know, their, their risk factors are high just by looking at age. And that's, I mean, you know, you look at like things like insurance premiums and um, rates in hospitals, things like that. Usually people who are older, you know, are judged to be more high risk. Someone's a senior, you know, they're, um, they're more, they're look at COVID for example, right. They're the first in line for, for the vaccine. But as you say, you know, you have some seniors in their seventies and eighties who are extremely healthy, who exercise, who, have lots of you know healthy years ahead compared to people who maybe are in their 30s and 40s who have high cholesterol smoking drinking um overweight things like that so i do think uh biological age might might be the more efficacious marker to be used yeah i mean we're entering the biological era where decisions are starting to be made on the basis of biology not on the basis of equality um of individual, you know, not on the basis of equality before the rule of law, we are starting to make decisions and judgments on the basis of um, age groups, race, um, you know, um, living conditions, all those sorts of things. And in some cases, you might think that, that that's very helpful, and it's a good thing, and it benefits certain groups, and um, it, it brings about um, greater equality. But in other ways, it's going to be hugely discriminatory. And I think you've seen a lot of it. Um, we've seen some clues of it with the COVID vaccinations, you know, the conversations about who gets the vaccine first mm -hmm. um, and under what circumstances. And then a lot of judgments about people's lifestyles. Um, you know. yeah. um, and, and in the past, in, in my day, it would have really been much more about, well, you know, this is this is society and people are kind of going to get treated pretty similarly. Um, certainly when it can, comes to healthcare, but now, now we've got so much data that it's going to be really tempting to use that to, you know, compartmentalize people, put them in little groups, um, and treat them differently, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, and then there's Aubrey de Grey's idea on, on the aging process. So, so for listeners who are unfamiliar with, uh, de Grey, what does he think is the solution to aging? I think at its most simplest, he's thinking about rather than us tackling diseases, we should tackle the cause of diseases. And he sees the cause of that 
as aging. And so if we can stop aging, we can stop a lot of the diseases. And I don't want to speak for him because he, he speaks so well on it and it's such a complicated topic. But the idea, I believe, is that um, you can stop the accumulation of damage in the mm -hmm. body. And if you can do that, then you stop other diseases and you stop um, the degradation of ourselves. And therefore, over time, you know, you stop... Um, you, you stop um, old age, if you like. And so he's quite famous for saying that, you know, we could live to sort of 100, 200, maybe mm. longer. Um, it's so hard for us to envision that. Um, but there's a huge amount of investment flowing into this longevity. Um, and uh, I know he's had a lot of investment over the last couple of years. I've heard him talking about it several times. Um, there's definitely a very wealthy elite i would say yeah. um mainly in, but not exclusively in silicon valley looking at you know how they can live forever yeah i mean it's certainly certainly there's there's that possibility and, and and there's a few different avenues by which that could be achieved one of them is the the idea of cryonics uh which everyone has heard of what tracy what's what's cryopreservation and how likely is that to become mainstream in the next 50 years it's probably not that likely to become mainstream because there are some ethical, legal and practical um, issues with it. But cryopreservation is, is cryonics is, um, I think the most famous place is Alcor, where it's a, a, a preservation, um, well, it's a preservation organization, I guess. So if you can cryonically preserve your, um, your brain, your body, um, so that you can come back to life at a later stage, be brought back to life, revitalized, if you like. Um, a lot of people believe that this is possible. I mean, there's a huge amount of um, logistics around it. Um, you know, you have to die at a certain time so that the, you know, I think it's within six minutes. Mm -hmm. you, you only have six minutes to preserve the brain. Um, so if you were to have a heart attack by surprise or die in a car crash, you weren't expecting, you know, you're probably not going to be uh, able to be preserved in this way. Um, but there is, um, there was a documentary last year, I think it was, about um, FM30, who um, very famously was um, preserved in this manner. Um, and I won't spoil um, the story. I don't want to spoil the denouement. Um, but it, it is the documentary story of um, him being, potentially being um, brought back to life and revitalized. Um, so you should watch that. It's quite interesting, actually. Yeah, I, 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 so I haven't seen the documentary. I'll, mm. I'll definitely add that to my list. I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't necessarily see this um, catching on. I, I think most people don't realize, as you said, and, and you talk about in the book, how few um, circumstances are conducive to, to cryonics. It's not something that, you know, everyone can, can um, sort of be eligible for. It's only in specific situations. And then the more radical proposal is the idea of life extension um, and the prospect of transferring your consciousness to elongate your life. That's something listeners remember I spoke to Ian about last week. So what's your take on how likely that might be in the next 50 years? Um, I think it's going, it'll be possible in some way or another whether it's possible um, at the level of the experiments at the moment, I don't know, because um, it'd be interesting to know what Ian said. But um, the idea, of course, is that you can take your consciousness and you can kind of upload it to a cyber consciousness. You can basically take it out of the substrate of the human physical form and put it into another substrate um, to be determined. The problem is that, you know, our brains are analog and we're talking about 
another platform which is digital so that's quite tricky because really if you want to upload or remove or replace your brain and put it into another substrate it needs to echo um the analog nature of our own brain and our own body i i, I think um but it is very interesting i talk about the terrasem foundation mm-hmm. and how um uh the rothblatts for example are using um bina 48 as um i guess it's a prototype really so bina is martin rothblatt's wife partner she wanted to preserve her in case anything happens to her so they started to do um they started to collect what they call mind files so these are any kind of sort of information that's um that's acquired digitally so it could be posts it could be um research papers it could be quotes it could be photos it could be videos whatever it is that's a kind of a fragment or recording of what you think or your opinions or your behaviors or experiences and you upload these mind files and create this this digital version of Bina and it's known as Bina 48 and it's kind of an android and, and you know it can carry out a conversation uh, with other people um, it's like a sophisticated AI I suppose in, in that way that's how it comes across um, but it is to all intents and purposes like the cyber conscious version of the conscious real life Bina um, but you know, mind uploading only kind of works in, in one way. So I don't, I mean, the question is, are they two separate identities or yeah. are they one identity? And I talk about that in the book. I, I won't bore you with the argument now, but <laughs> it is an interesting experiment and whether it happens or not, these innovations are fascinating and they are teaching us so much about ourselves. I, yeah, I, I love the discussion of, of uh, being a 48. So I, I hope I hope listeners will, will check check the book out for that. Um, and and it, it reminds me, have you seen I'm sure you've seen Black Mirror, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, did you remember the episode Be Right Back in the second season? Which that one? was the one where uh, and, and, you know, for listeners that haven't seen it, a woman's boyfriend is killed in a car accident. This is Black. Oh, Mirror, yes. Right back. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. she tries this technology that essentially recreates her de- deceased boyfriend by conglomerating all of his public data, his Twitter feed, his photos to create a new version of him. And this sounds exactly like Bina 48. So I wonder, did oh. Black Mirror predate Bina or did Bina 48 predate Black Mirror? I don't know. Bina 48 has been around a while, actually. I mean, Martin's a, just a, an unbelievably sophisticated thinker and scientist and engineer and um, into all kinds of um, innovation, um, experimental innovation and and a real futurist really. Um, But um, the other example that's quite good is, um, have you seen Upload on Amazon? Of course, yeah, I was was actually, I was planning to ask you about that uh, in the next question, yeah. It's it's a similar sort of thing, right? Um, it's scary because you think even in death you can't really escape. Somebody's going to put you into a virtual world and keep your mind going. And um, yes, of course, it's it's funny, isn't it? Um, that is also a situation in which the girlfriend pays for the um, for um, her boyfriend's mind or her boyfriend to uh, continue in the digital afterlife. So maybe there's something about um, controlling spouses here. I don't know. 
<laughs> I think I think that's um, that's that's a definite a definite possibility. And and it, it it's funny, you know. I, I did want to uh, wrap up by asking you about a digital afterlife. And um, you you talk about uh, upload in the book. And and uh, if people haven't seen upload, it's basically uh, a show on Amazon Prime where it depicts a vi- a virtual uh, simulated resort, Lakeview, in the not so distant future of, of 2033. So I mean, what what do you think about the likelihood of of something like that? Maybe not in 2033, but sort of a, a, a world where, um, you know, when people die, their their consciousness or in the case of the cyber double, in the case of being a 48, their mind files might be um, preserved in, in a system like that. Yeah, I mean, I think even if it's not possible yet for mind files to be fully preserved and representative of the actual individual um, when they were alive, I certainly think think there is a a sort of there's a collection of digital data that once belonged to and emanated from you as an individual which can be used to in some senses recreate parts of you or at certain points Um, so there are companies like forever social who propose that they can continue on your you know your chats and your status updates and all that sort of thing on social media even after you're dead because they've collected enough data on you they know how you converse and what you say and what your opinions would be and i think they even promise that um they can carry that out um regardless of whether it's a completely new platform um (laughs) that's fairly ambitious um and there are other um kind of um you might call them digital embalmers. Um, they collect a lot of data, especially if you if you know somebody is going to die and you have a limited time with them, you can collect a lot of their conversation and an AI can re- replicate that after they're dead. So you can continue to have either text-based or voice oh conversations with them. So there's a company called Hereafter, which do that very well. They, they've, they create memorial bots, they call them. Um, and then, of course, it will open up to virtual reality eventually and you'll be able to re-meet and greet and spend time with um, members of your family that have passed on but you still want them in your life somehow so they will be preserved digitally or virtually if you like and maybe you can you can meet up with them there's a famous documentary um, by the Korean Times called Meeting You which um, which follows a a mother and a daughter sort of uh, reconciliation after the the young daughter had passed away that's really you can see how comforting it would be to people. You know, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I do think, you know, we're starting already to think about not taking photographic images of ourselves, but to take snippets that can be created, um, that, that can be used to create holograms of ourselves. And you can see that some of this technology is going to definitely enable a, um, a kind of a data a data-driven version of us to exist um, once the physical version has, has passed. Yeah, I mean, c- comforting for sure, but also there's something there's something a little there's there's some dissonance here. It's something a little wrong, something unnatural about <laughs> um, you know having having someone's consciousness, someone's humanity uh, just gone and, and recreated. So, so, so I don't, I don't know, um, that I would opt into a system like that. I will say it's, it's funny. You mentioned hereafter and, and, uh, sort of like I'm active on Twitter. I'm always like reviewing movies. So what you're Mm -hmm. saying, if I'm hearing you correctly is when I pass away, this system can post a movie review, as I would have, you know, whether or not anticipating whether or not I would have uh, enjoyed it in my sort of like Twitter way of speaking. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So it would be I, like you've never left. 
I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would, um, if I would, if I would opt into a system like that. I, I think that's a little, it's a little creepy. I, I understand the sentiment, but um, certainly having memorial bots that continue to post on social media after the person's passed away, I could see how, how that, that would, you know, uh, some people might, might, might not be on board with that. It's interesting you say that because I think the way it will come about is through our, um, our adoption of avatars whilst we're alive. Mm. We'll be using avatars to send those to meetings. I mean, we all know the um, the guy that turned up to that hearing with that cat face filter on saying, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm not a cat. Not a cat. It is yeah. me. <laughs> like, it's me, Judge. Um, I'm not a cat in the gestures. Yeah, I, I, that's it. Which is brilliant. I mean, on the one hand, it's really funny. And on, on a deeper level, I was like, yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly the kind of identity issue that we'll be facing in the very near future when we've got lots of different avatars and versions of ourselves uh, populating um, different kind of parts of space time if you like and Deepak Chopra um, has obviously created his digital Deepak which is an avatar version of himself and he can be a mentor and a coach to you and you kind of download it onto your phone and it's an app and it he goes around with you but the interesting thing he was saying was that it will continue after his death and it will continue to learn after his death mm-hmm. and so in some kind of way it is like a digital spirit that continues on, even though he might have gone. And I thought it was interesting that he he said that publicly mm. and um, that that's the idea that it continues to learn even after, you know, he's passed on. And I think that's maybe the way in which these sorts of um, digital avatars will then become kind of digital afterlife. And maybe that's the way it'll end up um, populating our world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's an interesting possibility, and you can certainly make the case um, that mm-hmm. some people would want would would want to have their their opinions and their uh, persona continued after their life ends. Tracy, this has been a, a wonderful conversation. We've covered so much ground. Uh, to all those listening. Be sure to check out Tracy's latest book, The Future of You. I consider myself pretty up to date on cutting edge advancements in tech, but I'll admit I wasn't familiar with so many of the advancements that uh, that you mentioned in the book. And uh, some of some of them we've covered, but a lot of them we haven't. Um, it's left me with so much to think about. I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work, Tracy. Um, I'm at Tracy Futures on Twitter, where you can um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, the book's on Amazon and um, it'll be out in the States soon, but at the moment it's um, mainly in the UK. Um, or you can um, follow me on uh, Future Made Consulting. So I'm, I'm around and about. <laughs> Wonderful. Tracy Follows, also known as Tracy Futures. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Thanks. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with futurist uh, Tracy Follows. Probably the the most interesting takeaway for me, the thing that I'm going to remember the most, is what, what Tracy mentioned with respect to wearable tech and potentially having a device like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch in the future that not only tells you your heart rate and your biometric information, but maybe provides you with a glimpse of your potential life expectancy. Not, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be to the to the exact day and time that you're expected to to die based on your health information but i can definitely see maybe a percentile a percentage um maybe a year right maybe how many healthy years you have left displayed on your fitbit as as a, as a widget or as a feature and it's just a horrifying thought i i i think it's it's possible it might even be likely because of what tracy alluded to given our the amount of data that we have and our, our hunger, our appetite to resolve all possible uncertainties, I could see that happening. And um, 
I I certainly wouldn't want to know. I mean, it's it's you know, it's like that that uh that quote. I I, I think I mentioned back in I did an episode on death, episode thirteen, and uh the episode um was about you know acknowledging our our mortality and uh, at one point I <clears throat> you know addressed the quote of like if you could read the last chapter of your life to see how it ends, like, would you? Um, and I certainly wouldn't. Um, so I, I, you know, you can listen, you listen back to this episode in in five, 10 years and see if, see if that's, um, if that becomes mainstream, but, uh, that I found that to be pretty interesting. And then, you know, just, just the notion towards the end, we were talking about, uh, life extension and longevity. And, um, I think, you know, last week I spoke with Ian about about life extension and uh, transferring consciousness, and I don't necessarily think that that's realistic. As, as you know, Tracy talked about with the analog brain having to, um, you know, uh, having to sort of merge merge an analog brain with digital elements. I, I can see all sorts of all sorts of issues with that, and um, uh, you know, ethical, religious objections. But I do think having the notion of longevity where, uh, like Tracy mentioned, having a few more healthy years in which you can enjoy a high quality of life as opposed to just, you know, infinite number of of extra years in general. So imagine instead of uh, suffering from a debilitating condition, um, you know, dementia and and dying at the age of, of 85, um, you avoid those age-related conditions and instead you die at the age of like 110. So you, you have 20, 25 more healthy years, I, 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 you know, instead of 50 to 100 uh, <laughs> more years through life extension. I can see, I can see that, um, that, becoming, uh, that becoming more common in, in, in the coming decades. And, you know, I, I, I do think if life extension were possible um, – you know, if we were able to become, uh, I don't know if, if it, you know, if immortal is the right term, but if we're able to, to uh, dramatically extend our lives, I definitely think there would be a, a serious disadvantage. And if you think about it, our lives are, are sort of built chronologically according to, to different sequences, right? You have like your your youth, right? You go to school and, and you grow up and, you know, then you have your adolescence and, and then you're a young adult. And, um, you know, we we make plans for when we want to settle down, we want to have children, when we want to retire based on this time frame. So if if we were to, to lose that, if we were to just have have no chronology, age, chronological age would, would cease to exist because in this case, everyone would just live ad infinitum. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's, there's a certain danger there. Um, and I think that that would completely change the conception of, of our life, right? Like I, who, you probably wouldn't celebrate a birthday anymore. Um, you know, you probably wouldn't ask someone, how old are you? Are you, you know, 40, 50, 60, because everyone would just be, be around, you know, through this uploaded digital consciousness um, forever. And, and and the other thing is, and we, we spoke about uh, the phasing out of chronological age versus biological age. I, I think, again, this is something that the future is probably going to hold as well, where um, instead of, you know, asking someone a question, uh, instead of asking someone the question of, you know, how old are you? And, and that being the marker, uh, it, there's going to be some, some, uh, some alternative way of, of, of gauging that, that, that being like biological age where, you know, 
maybe it's not a specific number. Maybe I can see like a color, right? Like my my chronological age is seventy, but I'm a yellow, right? Like or my my uh, or like shorthand, my cron age is is sixty. I'm I'm a Y sixty. I'm a yellow sixty, and a yellow means like healthy. Or like I'm a I'm an R sixty. I'm a, a red sixty. So that, you, you, there could be a whole different system, uh, sort of incorporating biological and, and chronological age because as we mentioned you know i'm sure you, you, uh, i'm sure you guys have the experience of you know someone who's who's 40 who probably doesn't have the healthiest lifestyle and, and, so, and you know maybe you have a, an uncle or, or an aunt who's uh, who's in incredible shape at 75 is going to outlive everybody so i do think that's uh that's something i can see uh becoming you know, more prevalent in the future as well. And the other thing I wanted to mention, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this um, in the conversation. We spoke about machines uh, possibly uh, displacing um, jobs, right? And and Tracy sort of reconceptualized it as not displacing jobs, but displacing tasks. And, you know, I... I've always believed, and I mentioned this in our conversation, that there's really few, if any, jobs that um, can't be performed by um, by machines, especially as as they become more more sophisticated and and potentially autonomous as well. And there's a couple good examples of this <clears throat> in the book. Uh, Tracy mentions the G- generative pre-trained Transformer Three GPT three. It's a machine learning language model that can actually uh, autocomplete legal contracts. So you you feed legal text into it, and it actually um, you know uh, produces the contract. Um, it can also, if you put ideas into the GPT three, it can turn a, a script for a play. A one Silicon Valley investor fed some starter information on how to run board meetings um, into the machine, and it wrote up a three step process on how to recruit board members all by itself. So you know, maybe five ten years ago, it wasn't very likely that machines could, um, you know, could actually work efficiently in law or in the creative arts um, or in managing people, as in the example with the board meetings. But as you can see with the, the GPT-3, uh, it's it's becoming, and, and this is in 2021, who knows, you know, how far machine learning is going to advance in five, 10 years from now. It's becoming um, more likely that that those industries are are going to be infiltrated by AI, and and you know one of the areas that I initially thought that human connection required and that could never be replaced by AI was in person therapy, right? Like you need there, there's something about being in therapy, uh, sitting across from another human being that's listening, that's empathizing with you that I, I didn't think could be um, supplanted by 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 machine. The book mentions um, there's a, a digital therapy app called Con VR Self, originally known as Freud Me. And it allows you and this this is actually kind of interesting. Convr self allows you to become your own counselor in a virtual reality setting. So you uh, and Tracy explains this in the book. She, you start by choosing a self avatar and then a counselor avatar. And then you're embodied as yourself and you explain your problem to the counselor, right? And then you switch perspectives to become the counselor and you listen to yourself explaining your problem. The idea is that, um, the app will allow you to consider a problem as if you're an outside, an outsider listening to a patient or a friend, and then offer a solution as the counselor before listening to it as yourself. And you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I've I've uh, received and then I've I've given to other people when when faced with a problem is you know 
what would you tell your best friend if they came to you with the same problem? So let's say, you know, you are in a relationship and your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend isn't texting you a lot. You're getting a little insecure and maybe anxious about your relationship and you're not sure what to do about it. The the advice that that, that I give and, and it's been given to me is, well, you know, imagine that your friend was having this problem and brought it to you, what would you say? And all of a sudden it becomes crystal clear. You would say, oh, you know, I, I maybe find a healthy way to communicate um, your your anxieties and, and uh, be constructive about it moving forward in your relationship. It's so easy when it's someone else. With you, you know, you have the blinders on and, and you get tunnel vision. It's hard to... Um, to sort of imagine what what uh, what a pragmatic solution would be, but when thinking about other people, it's it's it becomes um, you know the solution becomes more clear, and that's why as much as I still sort of believe that uh, therapy that a field like like psychotherapy really needs that that human to human connection in order to be fruitful, I do think that some technology like this Con VR self. Um, app with with the the self and the council avatar might be useful to um to supplement it and that's i think you know that's one of the takeaways from uh, the conversation as well is it doesn't have to be binary and and tracy mentioned this as well it doesn't have to be either or either you have in person uh you have human to human therapy or you have ai only therapy either you have only you know um, humans writing screenplays and making movies, or you have AIs writing screenplays and making movies. I think there is a balance here where you you know you could have uh, AIs helping, you could have AI um, assisting and uh, you know providing resources and support to um, to counselors or, or to uh, to artists rather than just displacing the jobs. Maybe making their lives easier. Maybe you know uh, AI. Um, algorithms doing the the menial, um, you know, the, the more clerical work, freeing up our, our, our minds to to be creative or, or to be uh, to be loving. So I think that that's that's I guess a a healthy um, perspective that you really don't hear too much about when you talk about you, you know when people consider the future of AI and, and all the ominous possibilities, right? And and I consider myself in in that camp as well, folks, sort of contributing to the problem. Um, and the last thing that I wanted to mention, I I, I guess there, I guess there's two things. So um, really briefly. You know, we talked about Ian Pearson's conception of Google Mind Docs, uh, the shared information that you have with your loved ones. I wish that I read Tracy's book before I spoke to Ian because Ian and I, if you listen to the episode last week, um, we did we did speak about brain-machine interface technology and about how you wouldn't need to talk or converse with people. You would just have shared information. And I didn't realize, and I don't think Ian mentioned this Google Mind Docs um, formulation of it because I, I think that... That's a really interesting way to imagine and to visualize what what this might look like. You know, like like uh, imagine. I mean, nowadays, right? If you're if you're in school or you're on a team at work and you want to uh, transfer information, you know, it's oh, let's put it on a Google Doc so we can all um, brainstorm. We can all write the memo together. We can all um, you know create the uh, complete the group assignment as a team. And and you know, a Google Mind Doc would be that same thing, except. It wouldn't exist on the web, if I'm understanding it correctly. It would just be, it would just, it would just be. I don't know if it's like in the cloud or it would just be. Um, there'd be some sort of centralized database that could export the information to each of our brains. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm literally hypothesizing because I haven't um, spoken to to Ian about what ex- how exactly that would look and. Um, 
maybe maybe might need to have him back on. But I am wondering. Let me let me do a quick a quick search of this. Yeah, because I was wondering if anyone else had uh, had fleshed that out, but it doesn't look like they did. So Ian, so we might have to have Ian on more to talk about what that might look like. And you know, if you're listening to this in in 10, 15, 20 years, and now Google Mind Docs are as uh, as quotidian as as you know, making a cup of coffee in the morning, just exchanging um, ideas with people on Google Mind Docs. That's Man, that's uh, <laughs> you'll have a better idea of, of how this is going to work than I do right now in 2021. Um, and the, the last thing to, to, that I want to mention um, is really the first thing that Tracy discussed, which is touchless technology and, and transacting um, with with your face or um, with biometrics instead of credit cards and wallets. And you know, maybe more than anything that, that we talked about, uh, I I see this I see this becoming. Um, becoming sort of the natural progression, the natural evolution of, of bartering and, and uh, currency transactions. I mean, if you think about it, uh, well, first of all, Tracy mentioned it's already happening in India. It's happening in, in East and Southeast Asia, in China. Um, but if you think about it, it's the natural progression of the way that our system of transacting has evolved. I mean, you know, years ago, we had 150 years ago, we had, we had the gold standard, right? We had, um, we had transacting in coins and then transacting in dollar bills um, around the world. And then in the last 20, 30 years, you're seeing credit cards and, and transacting in plastic. And now more and more businesses are accepting Apple Pay or, um, or I, I don't know if, if businesses are accepting Venmo. And then there's that other one. What is it called? It's um, uh, Apple Pay. Cash App, Zelly, I think is one as well. Uh, so went from dollar bills to credit cards to now uh, just paying with your phone. And what's the next step? I mean, also, uh, you know, I'd be remiss to, to not mention crypto. Uh, you know, businesses accepting Bitcoin and Ether and, and Dogecoin. <laughs> Dogecoin now, the Oakland Athletics are the first major league baseball team to accept uh, 100 Dogecoins to buy tickets. And, um, you know, the, the next step Going from paper from uh, paper money to plastic to phones, digital to crypto, and now the next step is just paying with your finger. You know, paying with your fingerprint, paying with going to KFC and smiling, or in my case, Taco Bell and smiling, and they scan your face, and that's your payment. Um, I, I I can absolutely see that. You know, in in the next maybe even sooner than and you know twenty thirty, I can see it in the next couple of years. Uh, a system like that in America, and of course, much like with private businesses, some opt into uh, you know electronic payment. Some, I mean, very few businesses actually uh, still remain cash only, just because it's it's not expedient for consumers. But I could see some businesses opting into that. Some businesses, you know, uh, don't see don't don't see the benefit. Some some parts of the country maybe uh, opt out of uh, facial recognition technology. But I do think that that method of transacting, it's, you know, it does prevent some dangers. And, and, and we alluded to this in the episode, uh, particularly with privacy. But, you know, Tracy mentioned decentralized, uh, you know, formulations, maybe maybe a blockchain. And I, I think that's that's a logical next step. So, you know, uh, so I implore you to, as with the episode with Ian, you know, uh, these these podcasts are are timeless, right? Like you can listen to it now in twenty twenty one and five, ten, fifty, hundred years, hopefully, if, if Spotify or Apple are still around. Although in that case, I suppose you would just upload the information into your brain. But you know, maybe you'll listen to this down the road, and and all of these uh, predictions and um, you know future projections. Some of them might come true. Some of them you might you might be listening and be like, oh my gosh, touchless touch, touchless technology. That's crazy. We went back to dollar bills, right? Um, 
so yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Tracy. I, I loved reading her book, so so definitely check check out The Future of You. And, and uh, this has been a, a ton of fun, this this two-part future series with Ian and, and Tracy. It's the first time on the pod um, that I've done uh, back-to-back episodes with two different guests and have, you know, had one constant thread, um, been able to, to you know, uh, reference both episodes and, and pinball back and forth. So I might I might look to do this in the future because this was a lot of fun, um, and I hope that all of you got a lot out of my conversations with Ian and with Tracy. So next week, guys, is going to be a really fun episode. I'm going to be joined by Professor and Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University, Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He wrote a best-selling book called The Molecule of More, and we'll be talking all about dopamine and how dopamine explains why we only want things until we get them and then we don't want them anymore, how to tell if someone has a dopaminergic personality, and even how to manipulate the dopamine circuits in your brain to solve your problems through dream incubation. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for that one. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod via email, nervousheppispodcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you're interested in having an AI post on your Twitter feed or Facebook or Instagram page after you die, maybe get yourself a memorial bot. I'm going to opt out of it, but hey, there's technology for everything. (laughs) Take care and stay nervous.